Hello. This video will be done about original sin and about the age of accountability. Uh, now, I titled the video The Age of Accountability because that's typically the term given to this concept, uh, but I prefer to use the term state of accountability. But let's, let's get right into it. Uh, there's many people who have been asking me questions lately, some very similar questions about uh, the doctrine of total depravity and original sin and sinful nature. And I've done lots of videos on this already. You can check out those videos. I, in fact, I would encourage you to check those out because <clears throat> I'm not going to address, of course, all the, the scriptures used to back up these doctrines. But um, today we're going to look at this concept of state of accountability or age of accountability and also why do people sin. I oftentimes get asked this question by Calvinists or even those who are Arminians or those who are you know, have rejected original sin or sinful nature, these doctrines, but they haven't, uh, you know, figured everything out yet. They'll ask questions like, uh, well, if if we don't have someone behind us or inside of us that makes us sin, <clears throat> and we aren't born sinners, and we aren't born with a sinful nature, which is usually the thing that people say is behind them that makes them sin, then, first of all, uh, why do babies do simple things? or children do sinful things. And second of all, uh, how do we know that each person will actually ascend at some point in time? And a follow-up question to that is, is, is there a possibility that someone could live their whole life sinless? And then, of course, they wouldn't need Jesus, is what they'll say. Um, the first part of the question of why do children sin? Uh, we'll get to that here in a little bit. And I've already touched on that in one of my videos, a video called The Sinful Nature Lie. You can check that out for yourself. Uh, but this second point of, um, you know, they could go their whole life without, without actually sinning. And how do we know they're actually going to sin at some point in time? Well, first of all, I think we know they're going to sin at some point in time because I think the Bible declares they will. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Of course, I don't think that's re referring to children or babies or toddlers there. And we'll <clears throat> talk about that here in a second as well. But I think God in his om omniscience, his knowledge, certain knowledge of all future events when it comes to mankind, how they'll, what, how they'll choose and what they'll choose, he can declare that all men will choose to sin at some point in time. And, and, uh, but if there's no sinful nature behind us, you know, why do we sin? Why do we all sin? Well, the answer is simply because we've chosen to. And there doesn't need to be any other answer. In fact, when people usually ask me this question of <clears throat> why do people sin, if they don't have something behind them that makes them sin, well, I'll follow. I'll answer that question with the question: Why did the devil? Why did a third of the angels? Why did Adam and Eve sin? If they didn't have something behind them to make them sin, well, most people, except for possibly the superlapsarian Calvinists, will say, uh, "Well, because they chose to sin, they had free will and they chose to sin." Well, if that is a good explanation of the devil a third of the angels, Adam and Eve, and why they sinned, then why couldn't that be a good explanation for why everyone else has sinned? It doesn't make any sense why it wouldn't be a good explanation. I mean, think about it. We have a lot worse situation than they did. The devil, I mean, I guess the only temptation he might have had is something that he developed within his own heart. He had no external temptation. Uh, he was the first person ever to sin, and he tempted a third of the angels to sin, and they followed him. And they tempted Eve to sin and she sinned. And Eve basically tempted her husband to sin and he sinned. Uh, so all you need for someone to sin, unless you're a devil, and I, don't ask me why he sinned. Uh, I can't even fathom why he would sin. 
All you need to be able to sin is temptation and the ability to choose. And that's what every person has. In fact, we have it a lot worse than the devil did, a lot worse than he did, a lot worse than the third of the angels, a lot worse than Adam and Eve did. We, we're, we grow up in a world that's sinful. And not only that, we grew up in a world where most of us grew up with sinful parents who, even if they don't teach us directly to sin and teach us to do things that are wrong, by their own actions, by their own uh, example, they teach us to sin. And we all try to be the best parents we can be, and hopefully our, our children uh, won't follow our, our bad example that we may show at times. Uh, but we, we hope that they'll follow our good example, and we hope that we blame us before them. But children, oftentimes, they don't do what you tell them to do. They'll do what they see you doing. Uh, so I think a lot of times the, the blame for why children sin could be placed upon the parents. And I discuss this more in a lot of my videos on the sinful nature lie. And you can check that out for yourself. Um, but this issue of what, what would happen if no one ever sinned? And he lived a perfectly sinless life. Is there, is there a chance or a possibility that happened? Well, once again, I do believe that everyone will sin once they come to the state of accountability. But this is like the, the biggest objection people have to this. That there's a possibility that man could live perfectly all the days of their life. Now, do we really think that God's just wringing his hands up in heaven, this nervous look on his face, thinking, oh no, what am I going to do? This, this person who was just born in, in Chicago, Illinois, is going to live a perfect life. Uh, he's going to obey every single command from the day he's born to the day he dies. What am I going to do? He won't need Jesus then. I mean, do we really think that God is, is wringing his hands and worried about that? I mean, isn't that really what God wants? Doesn't God want complete and perfect obedience from people? And would he really be upset if someone did completely obey him all the days of his life? If that situation were to happen, which I don't think it, it will, because I think what, what the Bible teaches says that every man will sin, but if that did happen, what would be the would God have a problem with that? If that did happen, this is the way it would have to happen. Someone would have to be raised in a Christian household in the fear of the Lord, have uh, parents who gave them the perfect example, wouldn't let them develop sinful habits. So when they come to the state of accountability, the moment they come to the state of accountability, instead of choosing to sin, when they're presented with temptation after that, they decide to uh, trust in Jesus Christ, become born again, and follow his commandments all the days of his life. That would have to happen the moment he comes to the state of accountability. So I don't think this happened, I don't think it will happen, but if it did happen, I don't think God would be upset about it. I mean, does God really want us to sin, or does he want us to not sin? He wants us to not sin. So I don't think God would have a problem if mankind, uh, if all of mankind even, uh, didn't sin and didn't need forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. He would be happy uh, if, if mankind had never sinned, Adam had never sinned, and you know, all the world before Noah, during Noah's time, before the flood of Noah, they would have never sinned. God, God would have been happy with that. He wouldn't have been disappointed with that. The fact that we see his emotion, that he's grieved and sorrowful in his heart, that he had to destroy mankind, and grieved that he even made mankind, shows us uh, that he he rather have had a different kind of emotion in regard to mankind, happiness and joy over the way they're living, which I'm sure he had for quite some time with Adam and Eve, before they chose to sin. But what I want to do now, I want to... Uh, look into some of these scriptures here, and I also want to listen to an audio clip uh, by Winky Pratney. And this audio clip is a really interesting story that I think describes a child's life 
from conception until they get to the point of the state of accountability and, and, and how we as parents are supposed to respond to a child acting this way. And if we respond properly, we can teach our children to obey God uh, before they even come to this point where they have, to, they have the ability to choose to follow Jesus Christ or not. So let's, let's go ahead and, and listen to this audio first. Uh, it's about nine minutes long. And then after that, we'll come back and we'll look at some of these scriptures like Romans 3. And we'll look at some scriptures that I think talk about this state of accountability. It doesn't mention it by name, of course, but it talks about when we become a sinner at what point in time. Not necessarily an age, but a certain point in time in life. And it's not birth. It's not conception. It's not when you're born. It's not early childhood or when you're a baby or toddler. It's a different point in time in life. So we'll talk about that and have some scriptures for that. And also uh, some scriptures that talk about how men... Uh, corrupt themselves, which means they weren't born corrupt. They they didn't they didn't uh, become corrupt involuntarily because some Adam did or some one of their parents or grandparents did long ago, because they have chosen to corrupt themselves. So, I think the Bible makes it very clear about these issues. So let's go ahead and listen to this Wiki Prattney clip, and uh, then we'll come back and, and discuss these scriptures. And this is called His Majesty the Baby. The first thing a baby does when he comes into the world is to establish his kingdom. He, of course, is the king. He is number one. Because there is none higher than himself, he is in the position of a god. Babies do all this their first day among us. Shortly after birth, the baby is hungry. He is exhausted by a humiliating eviction from quarters which, quite frankly, he thoroughly enjoyed. Besides, his source of food is cut off. A complaint must be registered immediately. Baby cries, he wants service. A weary mother hears, understands, and responds, for nothing in all the world is more precious than her baby. Little fellow is introduced to the breast, and though he is not too happy with the considerable effort which is now required on his part, his stomach is soon satisfied. But now our little friend has a new problem. There is an uncomfortable feeling around his buttocks. Because his skin is very tender, he again lets out a cry. Mother quickly responds. She changes the diaper, caresses her beautiful baby, and lovingly places him back in the bassinet. Each time the king cries out, he is obeyed. In a typical day, the king has about six feedings and three bowel movements. Roughly nine times each day, he tests the authority of his kingdom. And each time he is gratified with the result. All he has to do is cry and someone will come running to attend his needs. Obviously, he is the center of the world. The world exists for him. He is a god. The days which follow are equally successful. A number of other people besides mother enter the baby's world. He soon senses and enjoys the love of one whom they call daddy. They are also referred to, there are those also referred to as brothers and sisters who are marvelously sensitive to his every need. The world, beyond any doubt, is a lovely place. Not a single demand is made on him. Apparently, he is the center of the world, a world which seems to exist for his sake. As His Majesty the baby approaches his first birthday, he is aware that things are changing in certain ways. Can't quite put his finger on it, but it has to do with the attitude of his parents. Specifically, is being restricted by such things as being placed in a playpen when it is not at all to his liking. Then there are interesting objects as cigarette butts and lamps which are not only snatched out of his hands, but that action is followed by angry rebuke. 
The good old days of unrestricted freedom are a thing of the past. The king has no doubts about the love of his mother, but her respect for his authority certainly leaves something to be desired. In fact, his majesty wonders at times where the mother is becoming a rival authority. Somewhere around the baby's second birthday, a real problem arises. The problem is mother. She begins something called toilet training. The king is curious. Not only is he not consulted about this embarrassing inconvenience, after all, what is wrong with the diaper? But even worse, his earlier fears about his mother are confirmed. No question about it, she is presently an enemy. This means war. It is a war between two kingdoms, each authority wanting his own way. Mother may have more strength, but the king controls his bodily function. What's more, he has one thing she hasn't reckoned with, strength of will. And a king that won't be beaten can't be beaten. Sometimes these toilet training wars last for years. <laughs> Fortunately for civilization, however, this particular battle usually ends after a few weeks or months. But not the war. The beloved enemies are known, yes, and hated when they assert their authority. They are the parents of all people. They are in an alien authority which is continually imposing its will, its terms and its power against the kingdom of the royal infant. The egocentric life, of course, is not something a child inherits or learns by imitation. He learns to be self-centered by the necessity and very nature of coming small and undeveloped into the world. Babies are supposed to be egocentric kings and queens. By the wisdom of the Creator, a baby in this way copes with all the rigors and dangers of the maturational process. This helps us to understand very early in our discussion that our problem as human beings is not that we are intrinsically defective or damaged or malformed or evil. Babies are inherently none of these. They are simply mispositioned, fortunately for them, while they are young, but we hope temporarily. Our position should change in the adult years. Our basic problem in the adult years is that we stand in the wrong place in our world long after there is any justification for it. Our place as fully developed human beings is not in the center of this world. That position is fit only for God. Only God himself has a right to be the center. The place for us human beings in the world is together, equal and united, under and around God. Kingdom of Self, Earl Jubay, Logos. Steve has it, tax Steve violently afterwards, and rip it off him. Yeah, in a Christian manner, of course. All right. Yes, son. Yes. I'm saying this, that a child enters the world self-centered because that's all he understands is himself. He doesn't even understand that problem. But when a child comes into the world, he has two problems. One, he has a love of conscious freedom. Would you write that down, please? He is free, he has a will, and he knows that he has a will, and he knows that will is free. 
You want to make a baby cry? Hold his hands so he can't move them. In other words, he has a love of conscious freedom. He knows he is free and he loves to express that freedom. Unfortunately, at this point in his life, he is too small to know that he cannot always express that freedom in a way that will be helpful and valuable. And that is why the Bible commands that a child be trained to surrender up his will when his desires do not fit the highest value of the household. That training should begin in the cradle. When the child screams and yells simply because it wants its own way, be pushed firmly and gently back into its cradle and taught, you will surrender up your will. That'll be a battle that will not come easily. But we are not talking about an inherited gas in his bloodstream that is making him sin. We are talking about a self-centeredness that is not even yet moral. We are talking about something that is part and parcel of being a moral being. That's why John Wesley's mother said, you must break the will of a child before they're four years old or you'll never do it. You've got to get in and break that kid's will and tell him you will not do that. I've seen horrible things happen. I saw a kid walking along the street one day on Friday and keep going, when did you buy that? When did you buy that? You know, it's only, only old enough to say that and walk. And the mother said, no, no, we've got to go. Ah! Like this, and the kid screams, ah! and throws a freak out on the ground. And the mother goes, all right, all right, I'll buy it for you. I said, oh, mother, in 10 years' time, you're going to hate yourself. Because not only you think you got peace because you gave in, but you haven't got peace, you just got an uneasy truce. And after the kid gets smart enough, he's not only going to not respect you for it, he's going to resent you for it, and he may kill you first before he kills himself. child must be disciplined. See, to Calvin, a child was demonic, was born with horns and a tail, and there was gas in it that had to be bashed out. See, this is the world of difference between self-centeredness and bubbling sin in the bloodstream. Well, I hope you enjoyed that little audio clip, and uh, if I remember, I'll put the link to the complete message Winky has on top of Original Sin in the uh, comments box below so you can listen to that whole sermon for yourself I would really encourage you to do that it's a good a good sermon informative good teaching <clears throat> but the point Winky's making here is that babies come into this world completely dependent upon people and uh, you know if, if I were to be act like a baby now as an adult and just be completely selfish I would be sinning but the baby is not sinning. God has designed the baby to be completely dependent upon their parents and designed this structure in such a way where the parents can teach the child as it grows up to submit its will uh, to the parents first and then hopefully that will transfer over later on to the child submitting its will to God uh, instead of allowing it to continue to assert its will and to be the king or the majesty of the baby in the household. And it's just so grieving to me to walk through Walmart or to uh, you know be in, be in someone else's house and see the children actually running the household, when God has ordained that the structure be that the parents run the household and the children obey and follow their parents, 
and unfortunately these these same parents who are having these problems oftentimes are blaming the problems they have with their children upon Adam and Eve, upon some kind of sinful nature, upon them being born sinners and they can't do anything about it. You know, the Bible says to train your children. If the Bible says to do it, you can do it, and the children can get trained. They can accept training, and they don't have to live a life of sin. They can be holy and godly. And um, But the children doing these things does not make them sinners in God's eyes. In fact, let's, let's look at a couple of verses uh, that will tell us the way Jesus saw children. The first one is Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3. And Jesus said, Surely I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as his little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus was lifting up these children who were coming to him, who the disciples wanted to keep away from him. He said, No, let them come to me. And uh, he, he said, Unless you become like this child, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. If this child is a wicked sinner, born a sinner, why would Jesus ever say, This is the example you're supposed to follow? Well, it's because they weren't sinners. He was saying, You need to be like this little child. And of course, not talking about a, a a brat child that you find you find in American households most times these days. He's talking about a, a child who's raised under the Torah, who's uh, raised under the Shema. And then you have Matthew chapter nineteen, verses thirteen through fifteen, which says this: Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid hands on them and departed from there. So Jesus says about these little children, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. These are what the king, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, these little children. Uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe the disciples had some view of original sin and Jesus was rebuking them and telling them, no, they're not, they're not sinners. Uh, but that's basically what Jesus is saying here, is that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, and he's not putting them down, he's lifting them up. And that's the way Jesus saw children. Now I'll look at some scriptures that talk about uh, us being sinful from youth. Okay, let's look at these scriptures here. And the Bible doesn't say that we're sinners from birth. It says we're sinners from youth. Uh, not sinners from conception. I know some, some of you, have, you know, want to bring up Psalm 51.5. I've done a video on Psalm 51.5. Go watch that video. Or Psalm 58.3 or Romans chapter 5. Please go watch those videos. Or Ephesians 2 even. Go watch that video. Um, but this, I want to discuss this issue of us being sinners from youth. Not from birth. Not from conception, but from youth. This is what the Bible proclaims. Look at first at Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. So you, say, you see here, before God, or after God destroyed the, the world with the flood, he said that man is evil from his youth, not from his birth. Uh, not from his conception, but from his youth. And even then, he doesn't have to continue to be evil. God's simply saying that men become evil uh, from their youth. I mean, Noah was living at this point in time, and Noah was a righteous man. Uh, in fact, Genesis 6, he said he was perfect in his generations, man who walked with God. So there are men throughout the Bible who lived in perfect harmony with God. Now, Noah said later on, perfection does not mean that you can't uh, choose to sin. It simply means that at your current state, when God is speaking of you, you're living in complete harmony with his will, you're obeying him, all of his commands. You have no known sin in your life. So in Genesis 8.21, after the flood, evil from their youth. And youth does not mean birth, baby, or conception, or even toddler or child. It means early youth. Uh, it means around 
probably around the pre-teenage, around 12, 13, something like that, which goes along very well with the Jewish conception of bar mitzvah and bar mitzvah, uh, which in those two words, bar mitzvah and bar mitzvah simply mean one to whom the commandments apply. And for the for the girls, it was done at 12. For the boys, it was done at 13. These are their celebrations to bring them into adulthood. And if in Jewish tradition, if they weren't uh, to the state of accountability yet, they are now, according to Jewish, Jewish tradition. Now, that's not that. But the Bible doesn't lay it out that specifically like that, but that's what the Jewish tradition was, which I think they get from the they get then they get it from the Old Testament. So there's one verse there. Let's go to the next one. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter one and verse thirty nine says this Moreover, your little ones who said would who you said would become a prey, and your sons who this day have no knowledge of good or evil shall enter there, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. So these little ones which means little child, or your, your sons, these are your young children now, who have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall enter into the promised land, I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. Uh, they're not to the youth yet, they're just young ones, they're young children, and they have no knowledge of good or evil yet. Uh, so if, if you're born a sinner, how could you not have knowledge of good or evil and be a little child? You see how that doesn't make any sense? Let's go to another, the next verse, this is in Job chapter 13. And verse 26, and it says, For you write bitter things against me, and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. Job talking there, saying that he had iniquities of his youth, not of his birth, not of his childhood, of his youth. Psalm chapter 25 and verse 7 says this, Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 29 says this, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. So, Psalm is saying that God made men, not man, not just not just Adam, but men upright. And we know it's not just talking about Adam because of what it says next. And they have sought out, but they have sought out many devices. Not he has sought out many devices, talking about Adam, but they have sought out many devices. So God made man upright, and they have sought out many devices. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 15 and 16. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. So a child does not know how to refuse evil and choose good. It must be taught. That is the role of the parent and the God-given conscience that God gives the child and, and his law written upon their heart. That is the job of these things. The child must be taught these things, though. They must be taught to submit to their conscience and the law of God written upon their heart and the conviction of the Holy Spirit and, and the teaching of the parents. And sometimes the rod is needed to help the child submit to the parents' teaching and the, the Word of God. Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 25 says this, Let us lie down in our shame and let our humiliation cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. So, from their youth, not from their birth, not from their conception, not from their childhood or from being a toddler or from being a baby, but from their youth, even to this day, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. And then Romans chapter 9 and verse 11, For children not yet being born, neither having done any good or evil. This is referring to Jacob and Esau. They had, done, they had not done any good or evil, and they hadn't been born yet, but they were in the womb. Now, if you're going to take Psalm 51.5 literally and say that David was actually conceived in sin and then everyone else is conceived in sin, then Jacob and Esau were already sinners. 
in their mother's womb, but they hadn't done any good or evil according to God. So they, they can't be have Adam's sin transferred to them, otherwise they've already done good or evil. And they couldn't have this covenant that, that, that Adam made with God that when he sins, everyone else has sinned in him, in his loins. Because then Jacob and Esau would have already been sinners. But they weren't sinners. They had done no, no good or evil uh, at that point in time. And God just simply chose that the nation that came from Jacob would be the nation that brought Messiah through, the chosen nation. Okay, now I want to look at uh, some other scriptures here that talk about <coughs> people corrupting themselves. The first one I look at is Genesis chapter 6 and verse 12, which says, So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So, they weren't born corrupt. They weren't conceived corrupt. They had corrupted their ways. They corrupted their ways. So it means they weren't corrupt before they started corrupting their ways. And we know from the scripture we just saw, they corrupted their ways from their youth. Because when a child sins, or a baby does something that's sinful, you know, if we did it, it'd be sinful. God doesn't impute it to them. God doesn't uh, hold it against them or hold them accountable for it because they don't have any understanding of what they're doing. They don't understand. They have no knowledge of good or evil to this day, as it says in the other passage I read a minute ago. So, God does not hold these things against them because they're still in this phase of being taught. Their brain is being developed. Uh, they're they don't understand these things yet. So, if they don't understand, they're not held accountable for these things. Um, Next scripture I look at is Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 5. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. So who corrupted them? Was it Adam and Eve? Was it Satan? Uh, was it their parents, their grandparents? Was it anyone in their lineage? No, they corrupted themselves. Uh, they were a perverse and crooked generation. Perverse means they're perverting it, they're corrupting their nature, they're doing the opposite of what they are meant to do. So to pervert something means you're doing the... It's like a homosexual, perverts his nature. And man is not meant to be made with man. A woman is not meant to be woman, but a man is meant to be with woman and woman with man. So when they pervert their themselves, uh, their perverse and crooked generation, they're doing the exact opposite of what they were meant to do in the first place. Uh, let's look at Psalm chapter 14 and verse 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not one. So, he looks up, the Lord looks upon the children of men to see if there is any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. So they're, they've turned aside, which means they weren't turned aside at some point in time. They had together become corrupt. I mean, they weren't corrupt at some point in time. They've chosen to be this way. No one made them this way. They weren't born this way. They weren't conceived this way. They weren't this way as a toddler or a child. They were this way from their youth. And then saw Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So we have all gone astray. As sheep, which means he weren't astray at some point in time, and everyone has turned to his own way. This means he wasn't turned to his own way at some point in time. So I think these verses are, are pretty clear that um, men have decided to become corrupt. They've decided to turn aside. They decided to go their own way. They decided to pervert themselves. They weren't born perverted, corrupted, or 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 sheep who've gone astray. They weren't conceived that in that manner. They've chosen to be that manner. They've chosen to be that way.
So we looked at some verses that make it clear to me that we're, we're sinners from youth. Uh, some scriptures that talk about how um, we men corrupt themselves. And I want to look at uh, just one passage of scripture, and that's Romans chapter 3. And kind of set this passage to bed once and for all. Because people use Romans 3, especially Calvinists, to, to teach total inability <clears throat> or total depravity. Which means that men have no ability to come to God. That men are just, they're so corrupt they have no ability to choose Jesus. No, no ability to choose repentance and, and choose to trust in Christ and forsake their sins. That God must somehow give them this, this special monergistic regeneration to enable them to be able to seek after him, to enable them to be able to repent of their sins and trust in Christ. Uh, but that's not what this passage is saying. So I want to get the context first. Go back to Romans chapter 2. And let's start in verse let's start in verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, be instructed at the law, and are confident that you you yourself are a guide to the blind a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and, and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who have abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So now we hear, we're getting the context here. Remember, there were no chapter divisions in the original letters, so there's no reason to separate chapter 2 from chapter 3. The context here, very clearly seen, is Jews and Gentiles. Jews who think they're holy, who think they're God's chosen people because they have the law, they have the prophecies, they have the circumcision, they have the oracles of God, and because they're from Abraham's lineage. They think that they're children of God because of these things. But Paul is pointing out to them that there's Gentiles who are not circumcised, who are not physical children of Abraham, and who are obeying the moral law of God, and they are actually the real Jews, they're actually children of the promise, they are the actual true circumcision of the heart, not of the flesh, uh, and of the in the spirit, which is not not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. So he's setting this up here, and and he and so he's he's trying to show the Jewish people here that they're in need of salvation, that they are sinners, just like the Gentiles are sinners. Now let's let's go back to Romans three now. Let's go on down to verse nine. Uh, to continue, we got the context now, let's go to verse 9 now, and deal with the scriptures at hand, which people bring up to try to, try to say that men are totally unable to come to God, uh, or that men are born sinners. And you tell me if you see this inability spoken of anywhere in these pas this passage. You tell me if you see anything, anything here that said we're born sinners, or we have to sin, that babies are sinners, or that children or toddlers are sinners. 
you tell me, or, or tell me if you see something like this, that all men have sinned and all men will sin, but no one forced them to sin, nothing that's forced them to sin. This is God's foreknowledge declaring this, with certainty um, this absolute rebellion of mankind. Not this inability or this born sinner issue, but this rebellion of mankind. And, and what I, I think we see fighting against each other here is we got universal rebellion uh, coming against uh, universal inability. And I don't think this passage teaches universal inability, it teaches universal rebellion. So let's go ahead and read it. Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Who's the we here? The we are the Jews. Paul's a Jew. Are we better than they, the Gentiles? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. So that's the point he's making here. Before I go on and read, that's the point Paul is making here. That Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Let's read on. As it is written, verse 10, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after the God. They've all turned aside. They've all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world will become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteous of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteous of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth in propitiation by his blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So you have all these declarations here from verses 10 to verses 18, these quotes from the Old Testament that Paul is pulling from different parts of, the, of Psalms and etc. Uh, to prove one point here that's found in verse 9. We have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. But the people who don't have the law, are they guilty before God? And who are these people who don't have the law? These are people who don't understand the law, who don't know the law. Now, the, now people have a conscience with God's law written upon their heart, but you have to be able to understand that, to be able to be accountable to it. If you don't understand it, like a mentally handicapped person, or if someone is a child or a toddler or a baby, they don't understand these things, they're not held accountable before God, and therefore they're not guilty before God. And once, and you see from verse 20 to verse 26, it's obvious, once you have broken the law, the law is not profitable to save you. Because the law, no matter how much obedience you do, after you've broken the law, your obedience cannot forgive your disobedience. So the propitiation for sins, Jesus Christ came into the world to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse of our sins. Um, and, and, that's, and that's why we're saved by grace through faith, as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. So, uh, the grace of God, the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross, without which there is no forgiveness of sins, Hebrews 9, 22. Uh, without that, we can't be forgiven of our sins. So once we've broken the law, all we are is condemned under the law. 
until we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, we must have a faith that works, an obedient faith, a faith that produces uh, works. Otherwise, it's a dead faith, and it will send you to hell in the end. So, as you can see, if you read Romans 3 in context, and don't just take it out of context, just read Romans 3.23, you see the only point that Paul is trying to prove in Romans 3, he's not trying to prove that babies are, babies are sinners, or that toddlers are sinners, that were born sinners, that were conceived in sin, as people will try to twist Psalm 51.5 to say, uh, for all people. Uh, it's simply that Jews and Greeks have all sinned, and it must be those who have understanding and knowledge of sin. For Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, They'll say, look, it's all there. It must mean babies. It must mean toddlers. Therefore, it must mean those who, uh, who are in their mother's womb even, because they're, they're, you know, they're actually human beings. or Since conception, they're humans. That must mean that they're sinners too. Well, all have sinned doesn't mean all. I mean, surely you don't, you don't believe Jesus is included in that, in that all, do you? Um, so anytime you see the word all, and this is typical of some people, they'll, they'll look at verses like God loves the whole world uh, or that Christ died for all. And they'll say, well, all doesn't really mean all there. But they'll come to these passages, and they don't interpret the Bible with the Bible, but they look at the rest of the Bible. The scripture we look today about us being sinners from our youth and men corrupting themselves. It's very clear to me that we're not born sinners. And you interpret Romans 3.23 in light of that. So the point of Romans 3 is not to prove total inability or total depravity, or that we have no ability to come to God, or that we don't have the ability to seek after God, or we don't have the ability to be righteous, or we don't have the ability to obey God. It's simply that we have chosen not to obey God. All of us have. And what do I mean by all? Not including babies and toddlers and mentally handicapped people and children and babies and people who are conceived in the mother's womb. I'm not including them in my all when I say that. Uh, so all must be interpreted properly. All doesn't always mean all. But all does mean all if there's no reason not to, for it to mean all. If a little sense makes perfect sense, take no other sense unless you make nonsense. So I think the scriptures are really clear on this issue. And I hope this video was edifying to you. Uh, and if you have other questions about this about this, uh, what I'm saying here, the state of accountability, or about being sinners from youth or corrupting themselves, please feel free to ask them. The comments will be open for quite some time. And uh, I'll do my best to address your questions. Make sure your questions are respectful. Uh, make sure they're not strongman attacks or ad hominem attacks. If they are, they won't be allowed. You're most likely to be blocked as well. Uh, but please, I hope this encourages you, and I hope we can discuss this uh, in a Christ-like manner. And uh, God bless.